0: Tonight is the first Sunday night of the month, and as such, we usually devote this to a period of time of questions and answers, and I will tell you, Brother Ray Weddington come up to me tonight, or this morning, and said, I won't be here tonight. He says, I hate to miss this, but he's filling in at Grange Hall. Their preacher, Brother James Nelson, had a heart attack, and so he's filling in for him tonight, and so... uh, I know that many of you enjoy the kind of lessons where we address questions, and the question I asked was, why do bad things happen to good people? By way of introduction, I want to, at each of these lessons, to try to point out the value of asking questions. We need and we ought to be a seeking people. We ought to be looking for answers in God's word and seeking to find the answers ourselves. We ought to be reading and saying, what can I find in God's Word? And there's a number of ways that you can do that. But there are times and there are places where you and I will encounter ourselves wanting to know. And we some say, can I really know? I want you to listen carefully to what our Lord said in John 7 while he was there at the Feast of Tabernacles. There were a lot of people questioning who he was. Was he really the Son of God? And he said, if anyone wills, if anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. The teachings of the Bible are not that difficult to the point where you can't find the answer. And if you can't find the answer, you can always do like the eunuch did, how can I except some man guide me? I will tell you, though, that as I approach the Bible, I recognize that there are some places that the text is much more difficult than others. Peter said in 2 Peter 3, verse 16, about Paul, as also in all of his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. So I understand there's some difficult passages in the Bible. We talked about each time that there are three basic kinds of questions. There are those that are textual. What does this passage mean? There are those that are topical. They deal with a particular idea, and then there are some that are practical. Tonight's lesson will be one of those that is both practical and topical. And so we're going to ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? This is going to be one of those that's going to require a little bit of time to explore it. This question has been asked so many times. Times throughout history. We're not the only people to have difficult times. As I listened to the announcements tonight that Brother Jamie read before us, I thought about some of those people that were announced that have cancer and how many of them I spoke with them right after they got the message that they had this dreaded disease. Some of those who were announced tonight have what is called terminal cancer. That is, They're not expected to live. This morning, Brother Richardson obviously was very emotional and very distraught because he was told and he expects that his cancer is terminal. He was given six months and he's had six months. And now it appears that, for him at least, there doesn't appear to be many more days ahead. But as I go through the Bible, I find that there are many people who suffered horrible losses in their lives some people have had terrible illnesses. You know, King Hezekiah had a terrible illness. In fact, the one that he was told he would not live. Some people experience accidents. It wasn't but just a few years ago that our beloved sister Carol Boyd was killed in an accident and that caused grief and sadness throughout this congregation. There's some people who through no fault of their own have found themselves in financial ruin. It appears that this problem and that problem caused a, a matter of cascading failures and brought about their own financial ruin. And the question is, why does this have to happen to good people? And so people might even ask the question, is God really fair? Has He been fair to me? Has He been fair to my family? And some people... Hold on to their faith in spite of their troubles. I love Job 1 and verse 22. And all this, Job did not sin. Now listen carefully, nor charge God with wrong. We need to realize people have faced this before, and there are people who are seeking an answer. And so here's what we're going to do tonight as we explore this subject. We're going to look, first of all, at the examples. Some modern, some current. We're going to look at some biblically. Then we're going to find some encouragement that we would find from reading some important passages of God's Word. And then finally, some encouragement to be able to help us to deal with it. Let's talk about some examples. These are real. These are not made up. A 35-year-old mother with three children has terminal cancer. She decides to take chemo, and after a year of struggling with chemo, she passes away and leaves her three children and a loving husband. Those children are going to have to grow up with a difficult situation in life. Her husband is distraught. Or a 20-year-old college student who's on his way home from school. He's on the president's list. He's one of those really, really good kids. He's hit by a drunk driver. And he loses his life. Why did it have to happen to the good ones? You see, when I go to the Bible, I find the same sort of questions being asked. For instance, when I go to the book of Job, chapter 1, verses 1 and 8, what kind of man was Job? There was a man of the land of Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. Later on in verse 8, as the Lord and Satan have a conversation, he said, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. Even God used him to say he's one of the good ones. And yet, as I read the book of Job, he loses his children. You know, I've seen parents I've sat at the funeral home. In fact, I've sat at the homes of some in this congregation whose children have died. And I've seen parents say, the parents should never have to bury their own children. That's not all Job suffered. Job suffered the loss of all the wealth that he had. He was in financial ruin. And you know, once Job lost all of his wealth, even his wife turned on him and said, "Just curse God and die. Just go ahead and give up. I don't know if maybe she thought I'll find her another. I'll find another man who can provide better than you did." And then Job lost his health. What did this good man have to do with all of this loss in his life? Nothing? Why did this have to happen to me? Oh, if you just read Job chapter 9, you see Job pouring out his heart. He said, God, will you just give me a day in court? A day that I can present my side. And then he recognizes, if I were to be able to do so, I couldn't answer God. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph is one that if you look at verses 1 through 17, you see the discouragement in the voice of a person who's trying to live a godly life in an ungodly world and how he's going to try to deal with it. He said, truly God is good to Israel, to such as of a pure heart, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And listen, he says, there's no pangs in their death. Their strength is firm. They're not in trouble like other men, nor are they plague like other men. Therefore, pride serves as a necklace. Violence covers like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than their heart could wish. He's standing, he said, I'm looking at the ungodly man. And he says, they're doing well. They scoff and speak. Wickedly concerning oppression, they speak loftily. They set their mouth against their heaven. Their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here as a water of, full, of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are ungodly who are always at ease, and they increase in riches. Now verse 13 starts telling you about Asaph's view of himself. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. But listen carefully. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to a generation of your people or your children. And when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever looked at a difficulty, a problem in your life, and you see others who are ungodly doing better, and you see yourself, and you see your family, and you wonder, why, God, has this been so unfair? And he says, as I thought about it, it became too painful. Of course, there's a real key in verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. I finally began to understand it all. You think about Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a great prophet of God. He did exactly what God told him to do. He preached God's message when, where, and how God told him to do it. And because he was so loyal and so faithful to God, he did not get the pats on the back. He did not get people shaking his hand saying, wow, you delivered a great prophecy. What Jeremiah got was to be put in stocks. What Jeremiah got was mocking every day. What Jeremiah got was thrown into a dungeon and sink up into mire to his armpits. And only by the rescue of ebed melech pulling him out He had to eat very poor rations. He was a man suffered and he said in chapter 12, verse 1, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you, yet let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? And why are those who deal so treacherously happy who deal so treacherously? Why is it, God, that those of us who are trying to do what is right suffer so intensely? Not just Jeremiah, not just Asaph, not just Job. You come to the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk looks out at a nation that is just like the United States in 2016. There's ungodliness on every level, whether it's local, national, And people are not pursuing what is right. And he doesn't understand why God doesn't correct those things and reward righteous people and punish the wicked ones. He says, why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore the perverse judgment proceeds verse 13 yet your eyes are purer than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he God why don't you fix it the system is broken here are people crying out to God saying it's not fair well, let me for a moment talk about some explanations. Because the Bible does provide some direction. And here's what we have assumed in our minds. That if I'm good, God is only going to give me good, pleasurable, enjoyable things in this life. If I am righteous, God's not going to cause me to suffer at all. That God's going to cause that, and that's not anything that the Bible has promised. God's not promised a rose garden without thorns. Man has assumed that there's no value, there's no benefit in suffering. He doesn't see that there is something good that can come out of something bad. Don't you listen to David in Psalm one nineteen, verse seventy one? Then going back to verse 67. He said, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Do you know one thing that suffering does for us, whether it is our own suffering or suffering that we see in our family? Does touch us. It teaches us something about service to God. You know, sometimes you have to endure something to appreciate. You have to endure sickness before you appreciate health, you have to endure suffering before you appreciate wealth. How many of you started out as a young couple with nothing? And now you look and you say, I'm so blessed. I have, you know what makes you feel so blessed? Is because you know what it was like to have nothing. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 and verse 9. Very powerful statement. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience. By the things which he suffered. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus learned something. He experienced something. And then he says, And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. He obeyed. He learned something. He learned about suffering. You and I then follow his example by means of obedience. Lamentations 3 verse 27 says, It is good for a man to bear the yoke of his youth. Sometimes we make a mistake and we learn from those mistakes. I remember as a kid, we went to the auditorium at the Lamar County High School when I was in elementary school. And we had a teacher said, Don't put your hands anywhere up on that stage. You kids sit down. One of the kids said, let's let's go over and put our fingers in those light sockets. You know what several of us did? Ouch. Why they had the power on, I'll never know. But you know what? I never have done that again. I learned a lesson from it. It's good that there's pain in doing something that's dangerous. It teaches you not to do it again. It's good for a man to bear the yoke of his youth. It also helps us help others. You see, God intends us to be the instruments, the vessels, His hands, His mouth, His arms to be able to help other people. Paul put it like this in writing the Corinthians in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves were comforted of God Oh, some of you have gone through some tough times. Some of you have survived cancer. Some of you have come out on the other side. And then when someone else gets that devastating news, you're able to go and put your arms around them and say, I know what you're going through. I know you're scared. But let me tell you, the prayers of a righteous man avails much. Let me tell you that we will be here with you. We will be here for you. We know what it's like. It also helps us to put eternity in perspective. What is man's life here? It's but a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. It's as a a weaver's shuttle, just going back and forth, back and forth, and then all of a sudden it's over. It's three score and ten or four score years, 70 or 80 years. Then we fly away. Romans 8 and verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Chapter 4, verse 17 of 2 Corinthians. For our light of fiction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more and exceeding eternal weight of glory Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity in their hearts except that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning. He's put eternity in our hearts. That's the reason why when you grow older and you look at your grandmother and grandfather and they say, well, son, daughter, I'm not going to be here much longer. But that's all right. My reward isn't ahead of me. Those are the kind of people that are able to put this in perspective. Let me offer some words of encouragement. Some of this I have acquired from other places. You can't always change the circumstances, but you can change the way you respond to them, and you can change your attitude. One of the best books that I ever read on this topic was written by Brother Paul Faulkner, and it's called Making Things Right, when things go wrong. And what he does, he lists ten things that you can do in order to put your life back in order. And I'm just going to briefly survey through these ten things. And then that's where we're going to bring the lesson to a close. These are things that you can do if there's trouble in your life and you're facing it and you're saying, what did I do? How do I handle this? Number one, choose a positive disposition. You choose it. Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. As you and I think in our mind that's the way things happen. You can choose to be positive or you can choose to be negative. You can choose to be bitter or you can choose to be better. His second one is will to whether you want to or not. When I read that the first time, I thought, you can't do that. Oh, yes, you can. Philippians 4, verse 11, not that I speak in regard of need, for I have learned in whatever state I am in to be content. Oh, you mean if I find myself in a tough situation, I can be content there? Yes, you can. You can choose to will to do that. I could give you plenty of examples. Number three, act better than you feel. How many times have someone you've spoken to them say, How are you doing? I'm good. I'm fine. I'm doing well. And you may think, Well, they're just not being honest. But what they're trying to do is act better than they really do feel. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9 and following. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To this present hour, we both hunger and thirst, we are poorly clothed, we're beaten and homeless, we labor, working with our hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat, we have been made as the filth of the world, the off-scouring of all things until now. Paul said, look at the way we're treated, but he says, we don't respond that way. When someone knocks us down, we stand up. It doesn't matter if you're poorly clothed, you're hungry and thirsty, you can act better than you feel. Number four is use your compass when you're off course. We would say today, use your GPS when you can't find your way. And what is our GPS, our God-pointing system? Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Okay, I'm off course now. What do I need to do to get back in the right... Okay, go to the Bible. Read those examples Read the book of Job. You'd be surprised the encouragement that it provides. Number five, don't kill today with yesterday. Boy, is that one ever true. You had a bad yesterday, but what about today? Are you going to constantly rehearse all of the bad things that happened yesterday that destroys today? Philippians 3, verse 13 and 14 says, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Number six, cut your line when it is tangled. When I read this, I thought about when I was about 16 years old, My first cousin, who's like a brother, talked me into buying one of these real expensive fishing rods that has the line exposed. He said, what you do is you take it and you just flick it that way. And I took it and I flicked it that way and it went. And there was just line everywhere. And for about an hour, I tried to pull and straighten and pull and straighten. He said, let me show you how you fix that. He took his knife and just cut right through it. So now I'll go buy you another roll of line. Good suggestion. Listen to Genesis forty-one verse fifty-one. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil and my father's house. You remember Joseph was so mistreated by his brothers, sold into slavery. But he cut that line away. It was tangled. It was a mess. Manasseh has made me forget all of that. Number seven, keep cool when you're hot. Oh, so many times we let our passions, we let our anger, we let our frustrations out. Only to find out later that we've only made things much worse than they ought to have been. And in so- Proverbs chapter 14, verse 29, he who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. Oh, if I could just learn to hold my tongue, if I could learn to control my passion. Number eight, make your relationships right. So much of our suffering in this world is because of our interaction with our brothers and our sisters and our mothers and our fathers and our children. And we don't try to find a way to work things out. Matthew five twenty three and 24 says, If you bring your gift to the altar and you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way and first be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift, which basically says... Work your problems out and work them out quickly. Don't leave them hanging. Number nine is go first anyway. He offended me. She offended me. My life, it's their cause. You can say, I'm sorry first. It's not a game. Number ten, live young even when you're old. Make a choice to not live in drudgery. I know those are not easy things to do, but if you think about them, you'll see some value in them. Challenges and setbacks can make a person better or they can make them bitter, and you can make the choice yourself what you want to be. I will tell you that I am not in a position to ask God why. Whenever I see people ask God why, God doesn't always give them the answer of that. It's more important that I ask God how. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God will make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. I need to be asking God... What path do I need to follow? What choices do I need to make to deal with what I have now and do it the right way? I'm going to end with one verse, Psalm 30, verse 5. His anger is but for a moment, but His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. I can't pretend to know everything that many of you are suffering or have suffered. I'm certainly not minimizing it or belittling it. But I do know one thing. There's a future that makes it all worthwhile. And that tonight, if you're not a Christian, you need to come forward and say, I want to be a Christian because I want my future to be assured If you believe in Jesus the Christ, you will repent of your sins, confess your faith in Him, and then be baptized. The Lord will add you to His body, the church, and then there is a future for you. There is a hope. Are you a Christian who struggled with the problems and given in to blaming God? If you have, you've done wrong. God doesn't deserve the blame. God has been good. James 1 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation, no shadow of t- cast of turning. Tonight, if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, would you come while we stand and sing?